You're listening to Simmering Thoughts, where we serve up slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology. I'm your host, Ryan Akers. This week, we begin the end of our anthropology series, a two-part episode that deals with man being an integrated being. Last episode, we were talking about man being made out of parts. This week, we're going to put all the parts together and see how being made as integrated reflects in Christian life. So it is time for you to grab your favorite beverage, grab your favorite seat, and sit back and enjoy slow-cooked thinking on Christian life and theology. Welcome back to Simmering Thoughts. My name is Ryan Akers, and I am the host of this program. Uh, We have an episode today that's continuing our anthropology series. We are uh, kind of responding to our last episode. We looked in the last episode with the guys with Bibles. We looked at that man is made up of parts. We kind of explored the theological concept of man being dichotomous or trichotomous. That would be of two parts or of three parts with the integration of body and mind or body, mind, and soul, depending on how you want to parse that. There are a lot of different places and and there are good folks that fall on both sides of that argument. Uh, But at the end and kind of in the middle, we wanted to, to make sure that we kept in perspective that while we are made of these parts, we still integrate as one being as one one person is one uh, human. And with that, we wanted to, or at least I wanted to bring someone on who had a little bit of experience in this as an academic and professional field, because this is an area that uh, plays out in a lot of our society. It's something that we want to make sure that we understand at least reasonably well, because this makes a difference in how we minister to people, how we speak to them. So today we're going to talk about man being integrated. And to do that, I have a guest. Uh, He has done the academic work. He's a professional in the field of mental health. Uh, His name is Dave Hughes. He's one of my Twitter friends. Uh, We communicate quite regularly on Twitter, as do many of you with me. Uh, I get my guests off of Twitter, as you all know, but I don't necessarily get my topics, even though this is kind of related to a Twitter conversation we had. Uh, this one is is kind of spinning it in a different di- direction uh, from, I think, where the original tweet was taking it. Uh, but at the same time, it's an important conversation. So, Dave, welcome to Simmering Thoughts. If you could go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so um, like you said, I'm a, uh, I work in the field of mental health. I'm a licensed professional counselor associate and specifically a trauma therapist. This is um, actually career number two for me. Career number one was I was in the Army on active duty for 15 years, which is a lot of the the impetus to go into. It was either going to be vocational ministry or um, working in trauma uh, after the military. Um, I have a very modest theological education. And when I say very modest, I mean like my my undergrad was at Liberty Online, uh, a BS in psych with a cognate in Christian counseling. and and I went to, I attended this year long leadership cohort for guys going into ministry that our church was doing. And I have a, um, a certificate in biblical, biblical counseling from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary that I'm still, um, completing, wrapping that up. And then, um, yeah, I also work specifically, um, in area of, of trauma. Let me, let me kind of circle around here. Recent research is showing us that, uh, trauma is much more neurological than we previously thought. It's just as much, if not more, in the body than it is just an emotional or a, a cognitive phenomenon. And so um, I'm, I'm trained in a three-year program that specifically works to 
uh, interact with and help re-regulate the, the part of the nervous system responsible for like fight flight responses. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, anytime we talk about um, the human experience and how we address human problems um, from a clinical lens, I'm very much in the camp of, it's not that clear. Some stuff that we think of as emotional is largely physiological. Some stuff that um, we maybe think of as um, being primarily physical is also uh, a psychological and, and volitional. So, oh, that was wordy. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. The, I think uh, this topic's going to necessarily lead to that, and that's okay because we can then take it. Once we get to the wordy, we can take it back and simplify. So, yeah. Um, but so all that to say. Um, yeah, we, as a, a jumping off point from last week, I guess, yeah. is, is probably a good place to start. Um, so in terms of, uh, is, is man a dichotomy or a trichotomy from my perspective? No idea. Um, <laughs> that's, that is about as clinical and scientific as I can get right there. Right. Um, man is complex. Um, man is a fantastically, amazingly designed creature and, um, I, I would say it's not always as clear cut and dry. So let me, let me throw an example at you. Our emotions, which we tend to think of as largely an internal phenomena, where from either a dichotomous or trichotomous point of view, would you locate our emotions? I would tend to place emotions more on the side of the psyche than I would in terms mm -hmm. of the body itself. But at the same time, I also know that my emotions are highly driven by my adrenaline level <laughs> because yeah. I sense that I could feel my adrenaline uh, move and move up and down through the day. It's something that I was trained in after having to deal with a trauma. And so I, yeah. I've learned how to understand when my adrenaline spikes and what that feels like. And so I know yeah. that that is a body thing to the point that now, um, you know, I live right next to an amusement park. I've said that many times on the podcast and, and I don't ride the roller coasters anymore because of the mm -hmm. adrenaline spike my body when i feel adrenaline spike i express or i feel it as a rage rather than yep. as a thrill and this yeah. is something that's started since i was 35 uh, or so and the same thing happens yep. when i go to the nurse and they try to take blood the needle hits my arm the adrenaline spikes i get angry i'm not angry at the nurse i'm just angry right and uh that response tends to to take me to the idea that there's a lot more to physiological with our emotions than there is uh, yeah. necessarily that we would think of or that we're trained to think of. The poets certainly don't take it there. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of times we take our, our cues of emotion through the world of literature uh, and through the world of the yeah. arts. And that that's where we think of it as a mental thing rather than as a physical physiological thing. And I, yeah. just from my personal experience, I'm learning that that's not the case. Granted, I'm anecdotal and not data, but at the same time, it, it's a, certainly a clue to make me think differently. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so you're, you're right on with, the, uh, with, with it being physiological. Um, so there's a, a nerve, for example, in the body. It's called your vagus nerve. It goes from your brain stem to your stomach. And 80% this nerve is responsible uh, for our felt sense of safety. So if we think about like fight flight responses, whether or not I need to go into a panic and take some sort of action or whether I can just, you know, have a snack and chill out and, you know, is, is the responsibility of this nerve. And 80% of the nerve fibers are taking information, not from the brain to the body, but from the body to the brain, where literally mm -hmm. our body is telling our brain 
whether we're experiencing this felt sense of safety. Um, and so, so to an extent, emotion is interpretive phenomena. So when you feel what we would call in a, a neurological sense activation, right? That's not necessarily fight flight, but it's any type of, I need to get up and do stuff, right? Your body is summoning energy up to go take action. Um, that physiological experience gets interpreted in a, a certain way. And for you, just based on your past and your experiences or whatever trauma you've experienced, that is immediately connected with rage. Mm -hmm. um, we have a saying in, in neurology, neurons in the brain that fire together, wire together. So if there's a, a, a very traumatic or intense event and that association is made neurologically of lots of activation, rage, because for whatever reason, perhaps rage was needed in the first event, then later on, when I experience that same level of activation, that same kind of adrenaline rush, you know, I, I have this immediate connection there. So to that extent, it is physiological. But then we've also got, you know, there are other researchers out there who've um, pointed to the, the cognitive uh, and belief components of emotion. So, mm -hmm. for example, a guy named uh, Albert Ellis pointed out that it's not really an action that summons up emotion in us. It's our beliefs and automatic thoughts about the thing. So my wife comes home and I just got home from work and I've been, you know, doing chores or whatever and taking care of the dogs and taking it. My wife says, why isn't dinner on the table? And I get angry. I didn't actually get angry because my wife said, why isn't dinner on the table? I got angry because there were, there was a whole bunch of middle stuff in there that said, you know, um, She's being inconsiderate. Doesn't she know how busy I've been? Why is she rushing me and making demands when she comes home? There, so there's there's a piece of this, too, that's the beliefs we bring in we may not even be thinking about in the moment. So if we look at emotions as interpretive phenomena um, that are part physiological, part belief, and, and not always something that's subject to volition, to will, um, it, it gets harder to place even something as basic as emotion as being in one of two or three categories. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, that definitely. Um, j just that idea of the rage, It as you were mentioning that, I'm kind of sitting there thinking, oh, great, I'm going to be in a therapy session here because no. the the big, uh, the, may, the first just absolutely massive trauma I had, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, mm -hmm. it keeps coming up a lot on the podcast because of the mm -hmm. topics we're talking about. Uh, was my brother dying when I was 10. And mm. my initial reaction to that, I don't remember necessarily my, uh, in, like the first 10 minutes of my emotions. I remember the things that happened, but I don't remember my emotions well uh, in that yeah. moment. What I remember mm. is taking a hockey puck that he had in his room and having it in my hand and feeling like I wanted to throw it through the floor. <laughs> That mm -hmm. is an emotion, yeah. and and we still have that hockey puck, and it's something that that uh, keeps the memory fresh, I guess. But that I mm -hmm. I distinctly remember that part of my reaction, yeah. uh, sadness, yeah. and all of those things were there. But that that anger, uh, and, yeah. and that was real anger, not really rage. Uh, <laughs> but because it was targeted, it wasn't just a reaction. Yeah. Does that make sense? At least yeah. that's how I parse the difference between anger and rage. Rage is just generally right. just not really curmudgeonly, but like just a angry at whatever. Yeah. Omnidirectional Whereas, explosion. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas for me, anger is more a targeted idea. I'm angry yeah. at something or with something. Um, anyway, yeah. so 
um, you know, that, that kind of uh, plays out in my memory bank as something that holds to be somewhat true. Mm-hmm. And again, that's anecdote, not data, but um, yeah. it's, it's a personal experience I've gotten. And I have a feeling uh, that, that as we look at, and as I think back at some of the responses that I hear from the abuse survivors uh, that I know, uh, I hear similar things from them. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's uh, certainly a lot of tie between uh, how we respond to something in one instance and how we respond in another. And, and we, yep. we know this uh, experientially in that, uh, especially inside of a religious context, when we go to church and we're in the act of worship and a particular song comes up that has a connection for us to somewhere else in our life, we often make that connection to that event in our life as we're worshiping and that deepens our worship experience and our reliance on God and our trust in God because he got me through there. This song reminds me of there. Okay. God's got me in where I am. And that's something we use. I know that's used as a ministry tool uh, to take us through that very uh, type of thing. You know, this, this particular scripture meant something to you back then. Does it mean the same thing to you now as you read it? And oftentimes the case is, it's even grown in depth rather than changing in quality. Yeah. And it, and, and really there is something also about our ability to be an active agent in that process, right? Where yeah. we're singing, yeah, to God and, and in a sense, perhaps to uh, the rest of the gathered local church, um, but also in a sense to summon up ourselves. You know, I, I love the way the psalmist, talks to himself about his responses to God mm. so much. Yes. You know, bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my, you know. Um, soul, why are you so downcast I'm, within I'm, me? <laughs> yeah, why are you such a, why are you so downcast? You know, I'm going to put your hope in God. Put He's talking to himself. And and certainly uh, in our worship too, we have, we have both these kind of components going where there is my association with and, and the stuff that's bringing in, um, all of these same experiences and responses that I had either maybe during the last time that I heard that worship song or whatever, but, but also me interacting with my experience, right? Um, which is an important kind of component to that too. So this, when, when I said, and I think we had briefly talked on, on Twitter about this, when it, you know, starts to talk about life as integrated beings, this is where I would say whether we're talking and we can get to like, you know, mental health problems here and, and whatnot. Um, but even experiences like how I have an emotion or how I worship doesn't just fall within one category, right. you know, where it's, we, we've got, um, my will, my volition, the, the I, that is that when we were talking that ghost in the machine, that right. no matter what scientific, uh, neurological, psychological part of the community you're part of, there's this phenomena that we cannot deny. And this is where I have a really hard time believing that every evolutionist out there doesn't have some moments of doubt where they're like, I don't know, because we can't point to the actual seat of consciousness. The I that is saying I am, it's something other than like, there's the neurons going and there's a sense that, and there's all the biology and the physics and there's something else that happens there. Right. Where, and, and we can't quite explain it, um, in terms of fully understanding the nature of consciousness. And so, when we talk about that part, our, our essence, that that I that's there, and we talk about the physiology, and we talk about the will and the volition, um, we can't set 
any one experience, like an emotion or worship, just into one one of these categories, you know? Um, I'm really kind of word vomit. Well, when you, <laughs> when you said that, uh, the, the integration part, and especially mm-hmm. tied to worship, it had not clicked in my mind. I wish I had had this thought last week, but it f- clicked it in my head. What's the greatest commandment? Love the, the Lord, love the your, Lord God your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, heart. and all your strength. Yep. And, and that's that integration that we have. Yes, there are these three parts, but they are integrated right. as, as, and all of this is to be torn, turned toward God, your physical, your yep. emotional, your spiritual, all of these things, uh, and not just, uh, it's not just an act of the will. It's not just an act of the body. It's not just an act of, of the spirit. It's, it's a combination yeah. of those things working in concert. Um, and I, I love the way that, that, that plays out as we're discussing it. And we had mentioned in the, in the pre-show discussion uh, a little bit that I, you know, in studying James over the last couple summers, especially last summer um, with looking at the, you know, the double-minded man who, who comes yeah. to God in prayer uh, and the idea that that person is tossed about. And, and as we come to God with one, with our heart unified toward him, rather than being double-minded, being of one mind in ourself, that's that speaks to that integration a little bit uh, and, and that it is parts working in concert, not working independently. Yeah. And that and I think that's kind of the, the point at which um, that might even be a discussion here about is this the thing that happened in the garden where as as sin yeah. is seen, is this what we see where God says, OK, you're going to die is this part of that dying where we, we are somewhat disintegrated in how we react to things. Um, and then as we, come, I think you know, I, it, there's a lot there. There's a lot of depth that you could run yeah. to really easily from that. I'm, I'm curious yeah. how you would play that through. Uh, well, and I would say that that's certainly part of it. Um, so when we look at um, the human system, and, and I'm not entirely certain how you can look at it and not see a broken system. So let's look right. at just this, that one little part called your autonomic nervous system. Um, for everyone listening, you have to remember this. There's a quiz at the end. And Ryan said he's going <laughs> to fire you off Twitter if you do. Um, right? but they, I, I, I explain this part. When you, when you work in a field like mine, <laughs> when you work in a field like mine, you get really good at analogies right. or you put all your clients to sleep, one or the other. I do but the when same I explain thing in the classroom. Trauma survivors, <laughs> <laughs> I, I say, you know, it, it's kind of like a car, right? This, this part of your nervous system, it's got two branches and they're like a gas and a brake pedal. And everything that's got a nervous system has this, all right? And the gas pedal is go, go, go do stuff. That's called your sympathetic branch. That's activation. At its high peak end, that's fight flight. But that's also like you get up in the morning. That's a sympathetic response. And then you have the brake pedal. And that's like a, the parasympathetic response. That's rest and digest, chill, okay. Normally, throughout the day, these things just work in concert. Just like a car, you need both to get around town. Right? Neither one is good or bad. So um, when occasionally, and this only, to my knowledge, happens in humans, uniquely, when we go through a traumatic experience or a very stressful, prolonged period of, of stress and trauma, um, we lose our ability to use our gas and brake pedal. Mm-hmm. And our, our ANS, that part of your nervous system, starts working like, um, have you ever seen a teenager learning to drive? 
right? <laughs> smash on the gas, slam on the brake, smash on the right? And it's like that, where we get kind of stuck on off and on. We're an adult and, trying to learn a stick really, shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, but you know what? But it is. It's, yeah. and, and so this part of our body that's supposed to be able to find itself, re-regulate, and, and, and refine normal after a traumatic event gets stuck. Um, and that's a lot of the work that I do is just working with that part of the nervous system. But it, it's so interesting to me that so many other problems, um, things like anxiety or depression, can be traced back to physiological dysfunction that we can look at things like this and say, that's broken. And I don't know why that's not working the way it's supposed to. Um, you know, where in my dogs, that doesn't happen. When they right. experience a lot of activation, I don't know if you've ever seen a dog do this after they're really excited, they stop and they shake. They discharge all that excess energy their body summoned up to do whatever it was they were doing, and they go on about their life. Yeah. So um, huh. it really is uh, a component. Now, I, I, I don't know that I'd say that's the sum in total right. of what our brokenness is, but I think that when we see the human being as an integrated being, um, sin leaves the realm of then being simply, and I, I know we're not, you know, um, at least I know from talking to you, right? Neither one of us is polygenists, right? Neither, oh, neither one of us would say sin simply equals bad behavior. No. Um, a, so the fight against sin is stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. However, we, we sometimes can limit ourselves in understanding the scope of depravity and of the effects of sin and brokenness, mm -hmm. the effects of, of the curse in kind of, sheltering it all off into the internal world which then sometimes leaks over and and you know well we can attribute things like cancer to the fall but we don't often think about complex phenomena like mental health issues as being yeah this is the the whole system is broken all of it is broken right so and that's i that's one spot where i i think a lot of pastors and uh, really, I'm just going to just say believers in general, average pew sitter Joe, um, we, we are, we are in because of the nature of Christian community and the nature of what we're called to be as a body, we are to, you know, what's, what's Galatians say six, whatever, one or two, I can't recall one's saying you who are spiritual. The other one says, carry one another's burdens. Well, what else to carry someone's burden the best? I mean, the, the most important time to be doing that is in trauma. Uh, and as we do that, we have moments to speak to each other, um, pulling Colossians in with songs, hymns and spiritual songs and, and spiritual wisdom, reasoning through scripture, what we see before us. And so many of the responses uh, and the hurt, the church hurt that we hear described on Twitter, you know, there's that there's an actual hashtag church hurt. So, you know, this is a real phenomenon that people are experiencing. So as we take that idea of what that is, I think oftentimes it is a failure to recognize this integration and to recognize the complexity of what's going on that you can't just take one verse as a Band-Aid and put it over this hurt. And, 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 and it's not even like a Tylenol pill that you can take that will relieve some of the hurt. We can't do it that way because how I interpret how, how I shouldn't say how I interpret, but how that verse applies through my experience is going to be at least a slight turn in angle from how you might experience that exact same verse. The wisdom and the truth is still there, but how it applies to my understanding is going to be necessarily different because different inputs, 
different outputs. Um, just, I mean, that's the nature of, of the beings we are. Um, and, and as we, as we come to unify around scripture, that it's, it's the scriptural thinking and the depth of scriptural thinking, this, the patience of scriptural thinking that helps, uh, guide through those traumatic moments. Uh, and sometimes that is, uh, understanding being the fourth of Job's friends who sits there and listens to the whole thing quietly for several weeks before he says anything. Sometimes that's what it is. Uh, Job's friends would be those those church members who do church hurt uh, because they didn't listen well and they weren't patient. They didn't see the integration of the whole system. Uh, and I, that's where I think the practical, you know, we're 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 discussing. You're certainly in a much more uh, detailed level than I am. For me, it's largely theory and 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 reacting. Uh, but, you know, even then. This is the phenomenon that we see so much hurt in the church from. And I think there's a lot of good ministry gone wrong in that in how we approach this Uh, and not necessarily pastoral ministry. But I would think uh, specifically as we look at the reaction of the church to abuse uh, current topic uh, that's all over the place, not just sexual abuse, but also spousal abuse, spiritual abuse from other people, spiritual abuse from within that body or another body that has been in the past. How a pastor ministers in those moments is key to the healing process and is really important. And, and there are so many pastors that are just not equipped. They do not understand even the beginnings of this because they've not explored it. That that real church hurt can happen from the pastor just being uh, the really the best term here is ignorant. They are unknowing of yeah. what to do and really how the systems play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think so. Something that you you touch on here that's really important. There's kind of this natural progression, right? So we talk about theological anthropology. What are man's parts? We talk about okay, so there's one man. And, and all these parts are integrated, and, and the phenomena of life that I'm experiencing, whether it's an emotion or it's worship or it's trauma, don't neatly compartmentalize into any one of those integrated parts. Well, then we, we kind of progress to, okay, so when the problems of living come up, whose problem is this? Whose jurisdiction is this? Whose baby is this? And that's where I think we often a lot of a lot of church hurt a lot of the experiences where we're seeing hashtags like church two and sbc2 and church hurt and 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 a lot of the stories i hear from people in there and 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 i'm thinking through this with with kind of two brains two hats on you know there's clinician trauma therapist dave brain and then there's (laughs) just dave as follower of christ right right as as someone who's experienced church hurt and probably has if not will be at some point the church of somebody else's church hurt if I'm the nearest sinner to you and spend the most time around you, <laughs> I stand exactly a right. really good chance of sinning against you. Sorry. Yeah. You know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> but, but, you know, so, but when we start to get into, all right, so this person has a problem. There's a problem with this marriage. Uh, John and Jane keep public come into my office. Who's ever office that is might be a pastor. It might be a therapist and say, our, our marriage is horribly volatile. It gets violent at times. Whose problem is this? Yeah. You know, and and I think that a lot of times that it's really when we get stuck in, it's my, this is mine or this is that person's or that person's, some component of the struggle is going to get neglected. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and, and that's where there's a delicate, 
especially the difference between uh, a married couple and let's say it's not necessarily an abuse even that it's that it's just they're they just are not listening well to each other not communicating and there's anger that's resulting from that from both of them in that that case it's kind of a that's kind of a clearly all fault uh between that and and let's say an abuse victim even a child uh, who's who's a victim of abuse, whether it's emotional, spiritual, physical, sexual, whatever. Um, those are, of course, rarely are you going to be counseling both the abuser and the abused in the same room at the same time. But at the same time, when you're dealing with the abused, it is such a difficult thing to to walk and to give counsel of how to protect yourself while at yeah. the same time saying it's not your fault. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that's that is such a difficult thing. And I think sometimes we as the church fail in that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the woman who is sexually assaulted on the street, how often is is the question asked? Well, what were you doing at the time or what right. were you wearing yeah. at the time? Those are the wrong questions to ask, certainly in that moment. Yeah. But but, you know, the first thing to do, you know, when you're <laughs> when you're dealing with somebody who's fallen off their bike, you don't come and ask them how they were riding their bike while they're bleeding. You fix the bleeding and then you can deal with the behavior later. And I think so yeah. often we fail in that and try to jump that process and skip ahead. Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, I, as we look at those different parts interacting, man, it's, that's a complex thing to try to think of. How do we, how do we respond to in a first aid standpoint, which is really where the church mm-hmm. often falls. Uh, yeah. We're coming in as a first aid thing. The, pa- the, the pastor gets the call that, that, you know, something has happened. He drives over to the house and he walks in. He's in a first aid situation. He's not right. in a, uh, he's not like the family physician in that case. He's the 911 call uh, spiritually, mm-hmm. certainly. And he walks yeah. into the situation. If he treats it like a general practitioner, we're in trouble because that's yeah. a different frame of mind. And the same thing as the expert, um, you know, the, 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 the brain surgeon doesn't get the traumatic head case first. First, it's the it's the mm-hmm. medics that get there with the ambulance service. And then it's the ER yeah. doctor when they're assessing. And then it's the sometimes the specialist surgeon. Sometimes they're even the fourth yeah. call uh, because yep. there's that process you have to work through. And so if we approach it, if we approach dealing with that abuse, you know, from a from a from a friend's standpoint or from a, a pastoral standpoint, that changes a lot of the discussion. Are, are yeah. we doing are we doing triage and first aid here or are we doing long term care in this moment? And I, I think right. sometimes we try, especially in our our lay contexts, we try to become that expert, that long term care physician rather than tending the wounds that are obvious uh, and, and just just tending those until we can get to a point of of some stability. Uh, I mean, the right. system's broken. You know, we were talking about the car. The wheel's broken. The engine's got a knock in it. Which are you going to deal with? You know, if the wheel isn't there, yeah. it doesn't matter what the engine does. You first fix the wheel. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go. Let's look. Now let's go look at the engine. It's running a little bit, but there's a knock. Okay, why? Um, and now we yeah. deal with the long term thing. And I, man, this is it's a it's a deeper topic than we figured on at the beginning, isn't it? <laughs> when I was planning my anthropology series, I wasn't anticipating, uh, but at the same time, it's. <laughs> I mean, man is so complex and it's again, as you were saying earlier, I don't see, 
there is no way I can get around the fact that something this complex, even more so than most of other created things, man, it has a complexity and extra complexity in that spiritual aspect yeah. that other things don't have. And that changes the process so much. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. it's mind boggling. <laughs> My head's spinning. Yeah. And it, <laughs> there's, there's a lot there, but I think, so something that's important to consider, and I'll circle back to, to something you said about knowing that first aid response in a little bit to maybe help. I don't know how many of your listeners often end up in that situation, but, right. but I did, do think, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of material here because the way that we view this, when we start to talk about man as integrated being changes so much that it's not just, you know, this one little pebble we throw in here, the ripples, right. you see it played out elsewhere. We see, we talked about, or you, you all talked about uh, in the last episode, uh, transhumanism as a, a thought. And so yep. if you're listening to this now and you didn't listen to the previous episode, go back, listen, when you get a chance to uh, Ryan talk with the Bible guys and they, they talked a little bit about this, you know, the, the trend of like downloading your site. If there was this sci-fi way to like yep. download yourself to the cloud. And there was even, I think a sci-fi movie or a book or something <laughs> you mentioned. Yeah, a couple of them. Right? Trans, transhumanism is that the philosophical idea that, um, we are simply elevating ourselves through technology and science into a higher and higher state of being. Uh, this is like, you know, evolution 2.0 and that with enough science and technology, we will, you know, self-actualize or something. It kind of reminds me of the food. tower of Babel. <laughs> You're right. You're like, this is familiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, you know, really, really, this is like Babel 21st yeah, century version. Exactly. Um, and, and, and and a lot of where we start to, when we get into stuff like that, we can see how I view the human creature as mattering in these discussions. And I do think that um, a lot of when we talk about, um, you know, some of this theoretical, theological stuff, the reason that matters in practice is because it looks like something at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, it looks like a philosophy, like a worldview. It looks like a way that we view problems, even like, you know, mental health. So. That's a whole different topic. Can the I idea j- of worldview. <laughs> oh boy! Can I jump back real quick? Certainly, absolutely. So, so, um, and I'm going to say this, and, and probably not everyone who's listening will absolutely believe me, but I'm, I'm telling you, as someone who works with people in some pretty horrific states, uh, with clients in different areas of the spectrum of suicidality, some of whom want to die but are safe enough that we go week to week, and, and some right. of whom don't want to die, but they keep thinking about suicide. I have a lot of, so I, I do some like imminence crisis kind of work and same thing with grief work. When you're having someone who's in deep grief and, and both of those can be part of trauma. When you're in that moment, two things need to happen. One is you need to recognize your own response to it. Mm-hmm. Most people, when I give trainings to ministry leaders and in the army reserves about suicide prevention, I'll often have people engage in an exercise where they have to, have someone if they choose to participate in the exercise because it can be really triggering right you know and, and have a practice conversation with someone who is suicidal so that you can know and notice your own distress in that moment you need to realize that part of what you're responding to is that you're in this situation too and it's a really huge thing and it's okay for you to have that response and when we recognize it and accept it we can go all right that's my junk not this person so when i feel the need to quickly say 
oh gosh, you're feeling suicidal, or oh, oh gosh, you were sexually assaulted. Where, where, how do you, okay, this is my distress. Right. You know, when I rush into fix it mode. And the second thing is presence. You'd be amazed of all the neurological wizardry I know and, <laughs> you know, the existential great theoretical or, you know, the techniques and no. Being with a person and making them feel seen, heard, understood in that moment is is powerful. Yeah. And if you do nothing else, those two things will get you 80 to 90 percent of the way through the crisis mode. Yeah. And, and so just I think sometimes we in a in a haste to affirm that someone is having a traumatic moment we sometimes both overplay and underplay the trauma itself uh, in, in, yeah. you know, in, in sometimes it's person specific and situation specific, but you know, we, we, sometimes we make molehills out of mountains and sometimes the opposite. We make mountains into molehills uh, in, in, yeah. in seeing what the trauma is because we're in a hurry to help. And uh, yeah. that's where, that's where that presence and saying less and being more uh, really comes in handy in those moments. And I, I, that's a struggle yeah. for me to not want to say something because I'm just my nature. I'm somebody who likes to talk. After all, I have a podcast. I like to talk. Uh, <laughs> that's not necessarily I enjoy hearing my own voice, but I do like um, I, I like to be able to help. I, you know, when when a trauma happens, um, it, yeah. it's interesting to me to watch the phenomenon of the Internet posted video of some heinous event. Whether it's, you know, I watched one the other day. Yeah. It was, it was three girls beating on somebody. Somebody sitting here filming three people beating on somebody else, and they're not getting <sighs> engaged. I mean, it's like really, it could be three to two, if you put down the phone. Yeah. And and yeah. and I think about that, but then I think about situations where I've been, in the immediacy of 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 a trauma situation, and it, it's not you know huge, but like a car wreck or. Uh, yeah. one time when I was in, in high school, early high school, we were at a, a store and a girl ran around a corner and hit the edge and busted her knee open and is bleeding everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. okay. In the moment, what do we have to do? Let's take care of this. And then what happens mm-hmm. when the EMTs come? Do I stay that involved or do I get out of the way? And I, I think yeah. sometimes, um, you know, maybe we don't get all the way out of the way, but we at least shut up and move to somewhere so they can access the person, but we can still be there as a presence, uh, as you know, because there's that rapport that you build with somebody when you're in that emotion, in, in that immediate moment. Uh, there's yeah. just a, you know, whether they trust you or not, the longer you help them, the more they trust you in most cases. Yeah. And so, you know, you just sitting there while the EMTs are working on them helps them realize that, okay, we're still okay here. And, and, you, I don't have to be telling the EMTs everything. Anything I notice, they're going to see the moment they see it. This is what I've yeah. done, and then I'm getting out of the way. And uh, yeah. uh, and the same thing goes in so many other circumstances that uh, a, there's there's a lot we can do as a responder in those moments that's important. And, and as right. a teacher, I've learned this as well because there's sometimes in the middle of a discipline situation, a signal is sent that this is bigger than what I'm dealing with. And I have to understand, is this a cry for me to just say, okay, we're done here. You need to see the principal, whether it's a discipline issue or it's something else that's just bigger than me, or I don't really need to engage in this because this is above my pay grade. You need to be in the counselor's office right now because this is more than I can deal with. And so I need to find a way for me to 
to politely and quietly and unobtrusively step away or at least reduce influence and allow somebody who has the right tools and frameworks to increase their influence in the moment so that we can actually get productive things done. And this is in the case of, uh, you know, a kid, it's not really an abuse situation. They're just having a rough day because everything's going crazy at home. They're acting yeah. out in class. I'm correcting them. And then they break down. Wait, hold on. There's I, all I did was correct you for talking out. And now you're crying. Something's going on here. What's going right. on? Are they overblowing the situation because of personal, because they way they react to being corrected or are they reacting because there's something more? And you have to figure that out with 30 people watching you while you're teaching a class. It's an interesting experience <laughs> yeah. to do that. And, and I'm you know, sure. um, it's, it's a, it's a weird situation to have a student say something that causes your mind to think that sounds like abuse. That's a hard, yeah. I mean, that's a hard spot to be in. And the same thing in a church setting, when someone says something, you know, rarely does someone go to a full admission of abuse the first time, right. there's a little hints and steps yeah. to get there. And if you notice those yep. steps, you know, in my state, every person is a required mandated reporter of any hint of, if you have a credible suspicion of, of abuse, you're just supposed to call it in. And so when yep. do I, as a teacher throw that flag that this is credible and start to run that process? And you know, last yep. school year I had to do it twice where I, in the middle of class, while I'm correcting a student, something is said that triggers the triggers, the situation. <laughs> um, I have to, without, without getting the class to understand what's going on, I have to contact the office, get somebody to cover my class because I have to make a phone call and I have to make that phone call as immediately as possible so that the process can begin. And I don't even have to tell, I'm really not even, I'm allowed, but I am not required to even tell my immediate superior what the situation is, just that the situation exists. And uh, man, that that's an interesting moment to be in. And and trying to reassure at the same time as I'm calling the kids' parents, trying to reassure that child <laughs> that being in class is a safe place to be because they don't think anything's safe at that moment. Yeah. And it, you know, so when we, when we talk about whose kind of jurisdiction is, is this and, and acknowledge that, Hey, that changes from one moment to the next, just mm-hmm. like the EMT, the first responder, the very first person on the scene is not the EMT. The EMT is not the doctor. Right. Um, the doctor is not the pastor that makes the hospital visit or the friend that comes and visits. Right. Right. Or the person who first responded who follows up by meeting that person in the hospital. Right. It, and, and recognizing that it's not just a handoff of, all right, this was this person's jurisdiction and now it's that person's and I'm done. Um, as believers, especially, um, one of the ways that this can work itself out in our ministries and our communities is understanding that those one another's that that one another ministry the life on life people preaching the gospel to each other bearing one another's burdens being just present you know literally just being able to be there and be a source of empathy and compassion and support and safety um that those people are not unnecessary because the problem also needs an additional expert over here right the you know to use an example i often use when we're talking about um, pastors, biblical counselors, and and therapists like myself is, um, you know, pastors aren't MDs, at least most of the ones I know aren't, and they still make hospital visits. Right. Right. 
So when we see the, the human condition is being integrated and the human problem is also having these integrated components, then all these pieces really are, are necessary. That, <laughs> that makes me in, in my mind, just thinking of that, the, the wisdom of the hospital chaplain being mm-hmm. there, even in situations where someone doesn't have that spiritual connection with a chaplain or a religion, even yeah. for that matter. Um, yeah. Sometimes that connection, I, I, I see potential downfalls of it and potential errors and things that can happen. But at the same time, there's a great amount of good that can be there. Um, yeah. Whether it's necessarily in the frame of immediate conversion conversations, which it shouldn't be in those moments necessarily. Uh, that is a, an aspect of it, but it's not, you know, sometimes the primary thing is to make sure the person's still alive. Uh, dead people yeah. don't convert very often. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> last I checked. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, it's, and it, it, there's a lot of that aspect to it. And we've, we spent a good bit of time, I think, looking at, at those practical aspects and the, the more, uh, ministry based responses, um, mm. I think partly because it is a practical thing for so many people. And this is something we all have to, we can't, we can go through life without understanding this, but we can Mm -hmm. go through life better with understanding it. And we can do a better job of, of being that one another to someone else. If we have at least a basic, uh, have thought about the idea that we are made of parts, but those parts are integrated and they are, they are, there's a a unification between those things. Uh, There's, there's, I don't want to say that's the reason that prayer works is because it's a unified thing. And, you know, God works through the fact that we're unified and the fact that we have these parts that are unified. God works through that to be a part of the answer of that prayer. You know, the, the act of, we all understand this feeling when you're in that immediate moment and, and you're feeling this, the one who's under distress. If you're the one who stops and prays, even if it's for yourself, there is a calming effect to prayer in those moments. Whether that yeah. is a whether that is God immediately in that moment dispensing to you grace, or whether that is you recognizing that there is a God, I am not that God, mm-hmm. and I need to be in front of that God, praying for mm-hmm. His uh, His uh, relief of my situation. Uh, those are both possible at the same moment. You know, I'm calming yeah. because I know. I know who God is and I can rely on, you know, what's the, the, the line, uh, God is my rock in him. I take refuge. So I run to the mm-hmm. rock in that distress and it calmed me knowing who God is, that he is, he has my, yeah. uh, my best, you know, that's the end of what Romans eight there, you know, mm-hmm. nothing's going to separate us from God's love. You can't break that. Yeah. So I take comfort yeah. in that. Now I calm down. Okay. Now my adrenaline level changes, my heartbeat changes, my blood pressure changes. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I don't bleed as much. And because I'm not yeah. bleeding as much, I'm not as in critical condition as much. I don't respond in as much shock because yeah. I've taken it to God. And and it looks like, and it may be a direct answer to prayer, but it's also the physiological way we've been designed at the same time. Yeah. And and yeah. I think sometimes we we try to segment our creation and, and prayer from each other so often. And we forget that sometimes God's answer to to our prayer is his presence. And that's one yeah. of those times where we, in prayer, take ourselves before the throne and we enter the throne room before God and his presence is a calming presence and is an answer to our yeah. prayer to begin with. 
It's a really yeah. kind of a weird. Um, it's it's not really a circle or a cycle. It's just a a, a do. It, I don't want to say duality either because that's not the right term. But, <laughs> uh, it is so hard to be precise. Uh, but I mean, it's it's that yeah. idea that where there's two functions happening that are symbiotic at the same moment. Uh, they're not distinguishable, yep. uh, and it's very much like what we're talking about with the humanity humanity being integrated i am not saying that man and god are integrated <laughs> so please right. don't hear heresy here that's not what i'm saying because god is answering our prayer through the way we're created in some right. part and and if there's one thing that the uh creation story at least as it pertains to humankind tells us is that god cares about and is intimately invested in the whole thing right you know, god spoke most all of creation into existence there was one thing he didn't speak into in existence. God took and he formed right. man from what he'd already made. There's an intentionality there. He breathed life into to man's lungs. God took it, he, he took from Adam's rib and he formed, he brought, you know, there's there's an intentionality and an intimacy there with the whole of our, our being. We will pick up this conversation again next week as we conclude our series on anthropology. Thank you for listening to Simmering Thoughts. If you've not already done so, please go subscribe to Simmering Thoughts at your favorite podcast catcher. Join the conversation by joining our discussion group on Facebook at Simmer Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at the same handle at Simmer Thoughts. You can send an email to simmeringthoughts at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at BandmanAcres. Thanks again for listening to Simmering Thoughts and we pray that you have a great week in the Lord.